welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that cares. (laughs) I love this. Thank you for writing that joke for me, Kellen. <laughs> um, today we have Julia, Zoe, Helen, and Laura. And today we're talking about care work. I think um, a lot of us have been thinking lately about what it means to care for someone else, like to take care of someone else and what the work of that is and what that looks like. And then also kind of what it means to receive care and how to ask for it and accept it, which can be a very difficult thing to do. So I wanted to start us off with a brief history of care work in the US, just to kind of give some context for what we'll be talking about today. Um, I wanted to just start out by saying that care work has looked a lot of different ways in different times and places. And this is just a very brief overview focused on the colonized United States. So some things here overlap with care work in other times and places, but a lot of things are different. And of course, before colonization, indigenous communities organized care work in a lot of different ways that looked different from what I'm going to be talking about, um, which I think hopefully we'll be talking about in more depth on a future episode. Um, But yeah, I also just wanted to say that the stuff I'm about to say is a generalization. So it's what was like primarily true, but there always have also been exceptions to this. Um, Care work is very tied to gender roles. And of course, there have always been people who didn't fit into those gender roles, who did care work that wasn't typically expected of them or who didn't do care work that was expected of them. Um, And yeah, I just wanted to say that up front. So I wanted to start in like late 1700s up until the mid 1800s, because this was like before the industrial revolution. Um, And during that time, there was less of a distinction between care work and work outside of the home. Um, Care work was a little bit more equally shared amongst like a family and community than what we see today. Work was definitely still gendered, um, but there were sort of tasks that were tied to the home that both women and men were responsible for. So for example, men were often responsible for farming and gardening and agricultural work to provide food for a family. And then women were more often in charge of cooking, cleaning and making clothing for the family. Um, But this wasn't as strictly gendered as it would eventually become. It was common for women to help out with agricultural work at harvest time, for example, um, or for boys when they were growing up to help out with work that was more typically women's work. And there was also some care work outside of the family. Um, a couple examples are midwives and teachers, which was work that wasn't necessarily done within your family, but usually was within like your smaller community and sort of care network. Um, only the very wealthy during this time typically had in-home servants like butlers, maids, nannies, governesses, all of those old timey terms. Um, And these were both paid servants and also enslaved people who did a lot of the care work for the wealthiest families in the U.S. Yeah, for sure. I just wanted to add just a little bit about the care work that enslaved people did in the Americas. And I know we're specifically talking about um, the United States or what would become the United States. Um, uh, Enslaver families, especially families that had larger numbers of enslaved people, would often have women um, who were specifically charged with raising children. Um, There were wet nurses, which would be women who were um, like lactating. Um, who would frequently nurse, like, you know, 
like milk nurse the babies of white families um, so that the white mothers didn't have to do that. Um, and there was also um, a role that was played to help raise enslaved children because enslaved parents obviously were worked very hard um, and didn't have a lot of times the abilities to take care of their kids like in the way that they frequently would have liked to. Um, and so during the day when children weren't old enough, for example, to be working in fields or, you know, working in the house, there would also be enslaved frequently women or, or elderly people who were um, sometimes too old to work in an agricultural context who would take care of enslaved children. Um, and so a lot of in um, homes where enslaved people lived and worked, they were doing a lot of the care work um, and uh, taking a lot of that burden off of the white families who would claim to own them. Yeah, that's a really good point that like people were responsible for both the care work within their own family and then also for other people's families. And I think that's like something that we'll see kind of coming up again and again throughout the history of this. Um, so after the industrial revolution, kind of in the mid 1800s forward, there was this move towards people, predominantly men and definitely more so white men, working outside of the home, um, so like in factories and manufacturing type of jobs. And women and people of color of all genders did more care work, which was both paid and unpaid care work, like both in the home taking on additional labor if your husband or male family members were no longer at home to help out, and then outside of the home doing paid care work in other people's homes, like as a maid or babysitter, um, which were often jobs held by women of color. And then also in the growing service industry, like cooks, barbers, clothing makers, which were often jobs held by men of color. Um, and while the second category isn't always considered care work today, this was work that was previously done within the home primarily by women and then kind of started to be outsourced as people had less time and more disposable income to paid labor outside of the home. And this is a pattern that continued throughout the 20th century as more people started leaving the home to work and making more money and then also having less free time, they start outsourcing care work and other reproductive labor to others. And that most often ends up being poor women of color and immigrant women. Yeah, I wanted to um, give a shout out to one of the original friends of the pod, Sylvia Federici. Um, <laughs> <Hello>. she... <laughs> Um, but yeah, she talks a lot about how industrialization led to women being increasingly expected to stay in the home. That was when, kind of as Julia was mentioning in the beginning, um, gender roles became more really confined to like the two spheres, the public and private. And women were, of course, the private um, and still are in many ways. Um, but in part because like their alienation was vital to keeping women doing the reproductive labor so that men could a go to work and come home and have a woman taking care of them and b the reproduction of um of the laborers of creating children that would grow up and then work in the industry and by industry in this in the industrial way of factories mm -hmm. i looked at the wikipedia page for care work and going into this episode and um the whole thing needs marks um they were, <laughs> they were like 
there's like a, a paragraph that was like economists have not recognized that care work and work that occurs in the house produces value but and i was like oh hell yeah we're gonna get like into reproductive labor <laughs> and they were like but it creates social value and therefore oh may be useful oh and i was like okay let me throw my laptop across the room <laughs> anyway <laughs> I'm just imagining like, you know, when people are like, you need Jesus, but it's like, you need Mark. Yes. Like, please. <laughs> but honestly. Um. Uh, rough. But yeah, I guess. So then moving forward to after World War II, um, there was kind of more of a surge in disposable income and prosperity in the U.S., primarily for white men. And many more people could now afford things like eating at a restaurant and hiring someone to clean their home. Again, these benefits were mostly enjoyed by white families, while Black women and men and other people of color were the ones taking these jobs, which were seen as less desirable. And then, as Kellen mentioned earlier, still a lot of times having to do that same work in their own homes as well. Um, So as more people could afford to outsource this work, it meant that more people were taking on that work as a full-time job and it was often undervalued and underpaid. Um, So in the period from like the 1950s to the 1970s, I think one thing to mention here is that a lot of legal protections began to be created for women. Um, Women became able to serve on juries, which was not allowed before. Contraception became more available and women were able to own property and take out loans independently from their husband or a male family member. I just think it's helpful to remember like how recent some of these protections were. And this really went hand in hand with the second wave feminist movement, which was focused on achieving legal equality between women and men and like not forcing women to be limited to paid or unpaid care work jobs. Um, So this is kind of a moment where there's this shift of women sort of pushing for some of these protections. Um, And one campaign that really exemplified this and I think still has a lot of impacts today was the 1972 Wages for Housework campaign. So this was a movement and demand for people, mostly women, who did unpaid care work in the home, like cooking, cleaning, childcare, to be paid for it. Um, And some organizers took this literally, while for others it was more of a symbolic demand and a demand that women's unpaid labor be recognized and that housework be distributed more equally. Um, The idea being if housework was more valued, then maybe men would do it also. Um, So like I mentioned, many women and men were getting paid for this work, but they were also getting paid terribly, partly because care work was still considered like not really work. Um, And this demand for payment made a lot of people really angry. The response was like, you should just do this because you love your family and not for money. Um, And we all do all kinds of unpaid labor for our families and communities, um, which I don't think is inherently bad. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But the issue was specifically seeing care work like childcare, teaching, nursing, cooking and serving food, cleaning, all of those types of things as less worthy of payment across the board, because this didn't just hurt overworked housewives, it also hurt the people who were working in paid care work. So this demand was able to bring together kind of a more diverse segment of women than a lot of other campaigns within the second wave feminist movement. Um, Like we've talked about this on the podcast before, but this movement was pretty focused on the needs of wealthier white women. um, And this was a demand that had a bit more, you know, broader appeal in that sense. 
um, and impacted more people. So the concept of wages for housework has continued to be important up until today and thinking about how labor is distributed across families and communities and kind of which work is really valued and which is not. Yeah, well, actually, Kellen sent me a great for this because what I was going to do was talk about Marxism again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We love to see it. (laughs) But yeah, going back to um, uh, Sylvia and like the Waiters for Housework campaign, um, which she was a big part of, like once women were able to move with each other and talk about their conditions being confined to the home is when they realized that like, quote, the personal is political. And that's like really what that phrase means and came from is like women realizing that it's not just like one person being unhappy because they're like doing all the housework and not getting compensated and like doing whatever their husband wants and et cetera. It's like, oh, this is something that's like a lot of women are experiencing. And that is how they began to organize and like work to change those conditions like Julia was talking about. And I think this comes into... um one of my like personal favorite things that Engels has ever said, um, and he's said many good things, but in uh, Private Property in the State specifically, he wrote that when it comes to the household, like men are the bourgeoisie and women are the proletariat. And I think that that just kind of like perfectly sums up how Hell how yeah. this started. And yeah, and just like contextualizes how women were like coming together, realizing that like these were labor conditions. These were bad labor conditions and they were organizing to change that. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Our favorite class trader angles. Um, <laughs> so yeah. True. yeah. So I think we're going to obviously love some history. Um, I think we're going to get into like current day stuff and just, I thought it might be helpful to like quickly define, and we've, we've been going through this. Like, I think it's, it's, probably pretty clear but just to just to cover our bases define what we mean when we say care work so like care work is in a lot of ways what it sounds like it's labor that's done in the service of caring for others and that can look a lot of different ways there's definitely an overlap with reproductive labor which I kind of hinted at earlier like a lot of domestic labor is care work um care work also involves looking after people who are you know for whatever reason less able to look after themselves and I think we're going to be talking a lot about that sort of particular type of care work today Um, so, you know, that could be babysitting, it could be hospice care, it could be nursing, like teaching, healthcare professions are also frequently considered care work. Um, although obviously some sectors of healthcare, especially like physicians work are less feminized than others. Like for example, nursing, like midwifing, that sort of thing. Right. And I think when it comes to paid care work, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of it has been undervalued to the point that people doing this work even today are underpaid and lack a lot of labor protections. Um, so one thing I wanted to talk about in the last few years that I think has really exemplified that is the Ain't I a Woman campaign. So this came out of a group of home health care workers who decided to organize for better conditions, primarily around the fact that they had to work 24-hour shifts. So a lot of home health aides care for someone 24-7, which means that they sleep at that person's home and If that person needs help during the night, they have to get up and help take care of them, but they don't get paid for the full 24 hours that they're working. It's essentially like they're on call at work all the time, but not getting paid for that at all. So this is still an ongoing battle, but a court did rule that workers who can't get five or more hours of sleep in a row need to definitely be paid for those nights of work. 
And in 2019, there was a bill proposed to ban 24-hour workdays. So essentially, that would mean like home healthcare workers changing shifts more frequently so they can get enough rest, um, which is something that workers have been advocating for as something that would benefit them, but also would benefit their patients and people that they're caring for because it allows them to be better rested and like bring their best selves to that work. Um, And I think we also just wanted to talk a little more broadly about some of the challenges that face paid healthcare work or paid care workers today. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to highlight how so many forms of feminized labor are care work or involve care work. And part of why they're undervalued and devalued is because they involve care work. And as a society, as we've laid out, care work is not valued at all. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about emotional labor um, as it relates to this, because people use emotional labor to mean a lot of different things. Um, (laughs) And I was going to say that's okay, but it's, it's incorrect. Um, but <laughs> so you're like, that's okay, but you're wrong, but it's sorry about like together. words mean things. <laughs> words do mean things. Um, and oftentimes how people use it is, is inaccurate. So <laughs> it's original meaning is referring specifically to the emotional labor that's required primarily from people, um, socialized in a feminine way within the confines of their paid labor but that is not the explicit purpose of their job. I mean, there really isn't any job that's like, we want you to act happy. Like that's not like your title. Um, And we talked about this extensively on the emotional labor in the service industry episode um, a while ago. But one example is like the expectation of servers to act and look a certain way is a form of emotional labor since it doesn't necessarily affect the explicit labor of their job, which is to serve food, bus tables, et cetera. Um, and all the things that that entails, but it does take or can take significant emotional labor to act bubbly and respond to customers in the way that you're expected to when you have whatever emotional things going on in your lives. And that's what it really means to like be asked for emotional labor. Um, This was coined from Arlie Hochschild's book, The Managed Heart. And where she coined the term, she wrote, the management of feeling to create a publicly observable facial and bodily display in the workplace, the standards of which are often set by the employer. In order to produce the desired state of mind in others, the worker must induce or suppress feeling in an effort to change their own state of mind. So yeah, the way that emotional labor is often misused, as I'm sure people have heard, um, is just kind of referring to anything that requires like emotional effort. And while those things can be inconvenient and can definitely be unequal in relationships, especially like heterosexual relationships. That's not what it, that's like emotional management. That's emotional stress. Um, but that's not what it means to be asked for emotional labor. And we'll get more into that later, but what it really does is erase like the money part of it. And it's explicitly the exchange of money for not only your physical and mental labor, but your emotional labor. And the work that it takes to change your own state of mind or at least be able to compartmentalize enough to like put on this face for customers, clients, whomever. Um, So, yeah, we'll be talking more about what emotional efforts look like in unpaid forms of care work a little later. Um, And I think that's a good segue into what Julia wanted to talk about next, which is the forms of unpaid care work. Yeah. Um, So moving into talking about unpaid care work, I wanted to start off just by saying that I don't think unpaid care work is inherently bad or exploitative and neither is paid care work. I think often partly because these types of work are so tied to family and loved ones, um, it feels very heightened and it feels like doing it in the wrong way is 
really, really bad. And I think like each of these forms of work is valuable for different purposes. Um, with unpaid or non-commercialized care work, there's often more of an overlap between caring for someone in the emotional sense, like through a friendship or family relationship, and caring for someone in the more literal sense of helping them to take care of their basic needs and reproductive labor while they're not able to. But under capitalism, most of us aren't able to afford to pay for all of the care work that we might ideally need. And we talked about this a little bit, but pressures from a job might make it harder to have time to do things we would otherwise be able to do. So that kind of means that we either have to find a way to meet that need ourselves, and that often doesn't fully work, or find community and support networks that can help us. Um, and I think unpaid care work often happens when someone sees that someone they love is not able to take care of themselves and isn't able to pay for someone to help them or is uncomfortable paying someone, maybe is uncomfortable with a stranger seeing them in such a vulnerable and intimate way, or just any other reason that paid care work isn't possible or doesn't really seem like the thing that's best for the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also think in this unpaid care work that is done by family members, the majority of this work, as we've like talked about already, is done by femmes and women. And this has both been my experience and the many scenarios I have done intense unpaid care work and also the experience I've seen my mom, aunts, and other women in my family do. Um, there's so much labor that surrounds anticipating needs of the person who needs care and people who were raised as boys do not seem to even know how to observe someone to anticipate their needs in a real way. Um, I'll definitely get more into this when we talk about our personal experiences, but it is really mind-bogglingly frustrating. And as I've discussed on the Season of the Bitch Hates episodes, men will literally say they don't see dirt to avoid cleaning well, and part of the care work often includes cleaning, laundry, and other typically feminized labor. Yeah, I also wanted to add that not all unpaid care work is done by family members or friends or people that you know directly. A lot of care work is also volunteer work and community work, which is largely because a lot of care work is underfunded as compared to other things that the government pays for, like cops and the military. So some examples are volunteer tutors and classroom assistants, which is a major way that public schools make up for lack of funding to actually pay teachers. Um, free health clinics, which are often staffed by people who are volunteering their time, hotlines and warm lines, which are basically like a hotline, but not when you're in like an immediate moment of crisis. It's more like someone who you can talk to and provide a listening ear. Um, and then other volunteer run mental health supports and volunteer work at food pantries and other community services. Um, so I think, I don't know, I think that this is also something that comes up when people just see that a need that they think is important to their community is not being met and they are sort of stepping in to try to provide that in whatever way that they can. Yeah. So as I was alluding to before, I want to talk more about the idea of um, the mental load and emotional load. And there's very amazing graphic uh, graphic novels about both of these um, by this French cartoonist named Emma, who we almost had on the pod, but it was early in COVID and circumstances did not allow. Um, but let's still talk about it a little bit. So they really address like the unseen work and management that um, women and femmes, like as Laura were talking about, often do in their households and with people close to them. And each book is like a collection of comics that relate to those overall themes, but show so many different circumstances, like in which these things come up. And I really like 
these terms because I think they offer a good alternative to the overuse and misuse, as I was saying, with emotional labor. So to give one example of them, the first one in um, mental load, which was the first one that came out, um, is called You Should Have Asked. And it essentially shows like this woman who's like doing so much, constantly like organizing the house, having to remember things, like kind of be like the manager of the household. And like when she and her partner, who's a man, is just like not picking up on anything, like not helping. Um, and then eventually when she says, like, can you help me? He's like, oh, like you should have asked, like I would have done it. Um, and I think that's just like a really good example and shows how like a lot of men just don't even like see these things. Like it just goes so invisible to them. Um, and reminded me like at a meeting once I was like facilitating um, this reading group that was like an intro to socialist feminism, which I feel like makes this situation just like kind of even funnier. Um, but there were a few men that would come and they generally were like very well-intentioned. And one time there was like one or maybe two men that came early. And I was like setting up all these chairs, setting up snacks, like doing all these things. And the men were just like watching. And then I was like, okay, like, can you, like, I had to like give them tasks. Like, can you do this? Can you do this? Like, they didn't just like readily start like putting out chairs. It was just like, ugh, the, the things that men do. Um, <laughs> and we talked about this. See it. You really <laughs> do. And like Laura was saying with um, our conversation on, I think the second season of The Bitch Hates, but it just speaks to all of these things. We discussed that a lot of men just like don't notice, like changing soap and like toilet paper or not cleaning up after themselves or like helping set things up like just isn't seen at all and so they also don't realize like how much work can go into that for the people who are doing these things and it just goes to like this expectation that like women will um see what needs to be done and like manage those things and also have to be responsible for like telling other people what to do which gets very frustrating. And I know Laura's going to talk about this more later on too, but it just puts the onus on the person who is doing these things to determine what needs to be done and like delegate tasks. Like that actually adds even more stress to the situation. Um, even if the people who want to help are coming from a good place, it's like still adds this stress of like, okay, now I have to decide like what tasks to give these people. Can they handle it? And it just, yeah, the like management of the, reproductive labor adds kind of a whole other like arena of stress oh yeah it's like if you're managing staff you would be paid for that it's like being able mm -hmm. to determine what people are capable of doing is a whole thing mm -hmm. <sighs> um so we're gonna kind of transition more into some personal uh experiences with this um and we're gonna start that by talking about what it means to care for someone with a terminal illness or diagnosis. So as I've definitely spoken about on this before, I am currently taking care of my grandma. Um, when COVID hit, I began running errands for her and also took her to any doctor's appointments she needed to go to. And around late May of this year, she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. So my care increased drastically at that time. Um, and so to kind of paint a small picture of this side of my family, my bio dad is my grandmother's only child, and I am the only grandchild in Buffalo. So since the diagnosis, it's been an uphill battle to get my dad on board with any semblance of care. Um, I had to fight him so that he didn't pursue chemo treatment, which like 
there's no way chemo would work for someone like my grandmother. And in fact, it would just take much of her life. It would make much of her life more miserable in the meantime. Um, so in the beginning of the diagnosis, my care work was not only providing care and comfort for my grandma, but also providing emotional care for my dad, who sucks because he couldn't cope with what was happening to his mom. And I know that sounds a bit callous when I talk about it this way, but to rewind a bit, I lost my stepdad, um, the dad who was really there for me growing up a year and a half ago. And I've been taking care of dying people since I moved back to Buffalo six years ago, including my bio dad's father. And I understand how difficult it is to deal with the realities of caring for someone who is dying. But for me, it put a massive burden on me that my dad has not been able to grow the fuck up and like actually cope with this. So currently, the care that I give my grandma looks like staying at her house 60 to 70% of the time. I arrive around 3 or 4 p.m., keep her company by chatting with her and comforting her when she gets sad, um, watching her favorite shows, even if it is the motherfucking Big Bang Theory, which we discussed last week, <laughs> um, and again, anticipating her needs. So watching when she's struggling to do something, like noticing if her breathing is getting worse, asking her regularly if she needs anything. I cook food for her every time I'm there and bring her fresh flowers at least twice a week. And this means I haven't really done much of anything this entire summer other than care for her. Um, And she has let me know on the nights that my dad is there, he almost immediately goes upstairs to where she isn't and reads the paper. And he also doesn't arrive until closer to 7 or 8 p.m. He doesn't help her change or make sure she's clean or spend time with his dying mother at all. And it's obviously avoidant behavior, but it still really sucks. Like, you can have empathy for the fact that clearly someone can't cope, but, like, it's too much. Um, Additionally, he has really struggled to put anything in his life on hold for this fucked up situation. He's traveled to go on golfing trips, and he has told me he needs Saturday nights with his wife, another narcissist who literally gets annoyed when he spends any time with my grandma instead of her. But that's a different story. Even though they are both retired and have all the time in the world and their week does not need to be within the confines of typical labor weeks. So in his inability to care at all, this burden of care falls to me. She thankfully has some hospice nurses that come throughout the week, but it's like for 30 minutes, like two or three times a week. And they just basically make sure we have the meds we need to keep her comfortable, which I'm really grateful for. And I want to be clear that In many, many ways, I'm happy to do this work for my grandma because she deserves this level of care and I would never want her to feel alone or more scared in this time. Um, It's just very frustrating that the amount of care is is really heavily on me. Um, So while I didn't have to do the majority of the care work like this when my stepdad was dying, I want to talk what it means to kind of push through your own discomforts with death to be there for someone. Um, For my stepdad, Brian, he was really young um, or like, you know, he was 60. So like young considering. Um, And he was very aware of everything that was happening. And for him, he was really, really concerned about leaving my mom alone at 60. So I think in situations like that, it's really important to listen to people who are dying and honor their wishes as much as possible. Um, and, and in the days leading up to his death, I wanted to like reassure him as much as possible that I would be there to take care of of my mom as much as I possibly could be. 
And typically when someone is dying, like in the last, in the last days they have, they might not be verbalizing back to you, but they can hear the words you're saying and it can provide a comfort to them. And finally, I briefly wanted to mention what it was like caring for my grandfather who had Parkinson's. Um, so with Parkinson's, dementia can be exacerbated. And my grandpa started to not recognize me or my family members when we would visit him. And I think that can be really hard for people because it can feel sad that your loved one isn't able to recognize you in all the ways you were connected. But it's obviously not that person's fault. And I think reminding yourself of the good times you had together can be really helpful to like ground yourself so that you can provide the support for that person that they will still need. Just wanted to say thank you for sharing all this, Laura. We love you so much. You're the best. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, it's so funny. Like, as we were kind of putting this episode together, I was like, I was thinking of like the Sylvia Federici stuff. I was like thinking of like the theoretical side. And I was like, I'm just going to talk about it because literally at this point, I've been doing this for like six years now. And um, so I'm just like, it's just... I just, <laughs> I hope it's helpful in, yeah. in its own ways too. Um, so, and also thank you for also providing me a platform for venting about my <laughs> shitty ass dad. <laughs> <laughs> I liked how just in parentheses was like, he sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just in case it wasn't clear. Um, he literally was a COVID super spreader. I love that. So, okay, then I wanted to transition more into talking about what it is to just be a caretaker of people generally. I think one of the main things we can do to care for people is to listen to them without judgment and without offering advice, unless advice is something specifically asked for. In certain philosophies, this is called creating a container for someone else. It's basically creating an emotional safe space for someone to talk to you about whatever they might be going through and all the vulnerabilities that might be coming that might come with that listening really listening is care so many people move through this world feeling unheard and unseen by the majority of people they connect to i also think this means like in terms of just generally providing care for people is when you know someone is going through something that you take the extra piece of emotional labor or the emotional load <laughs> to reach out to them and see if they need anything. Thank you. You're welcome. I misuse it all the time. Sorry. I Sure I have as well. It's just I think people should at least know. And if you want to misuse it, you know, that's on you. <laughs> yes. Um, but so when someone's going through something tough, they will almost never reach out for help, um, especially if they were socialized as a girl. It's not easy to ask for help, and when you're going through something hard, it's even more difficult. It can be really isolating when you're going through hell, and it can be like a lifeline when someone you care about is truly checking up on you. If you live in the same area as someone close to you who is going through a lot, offer to go grocery shopping for them. See if they need any errands run. Ask if their apartment needs to be cleaned. Bring over food or games to play and get your mind off of whatever is going on. I mean, obviously care is unique to whatever individual you're providing care for, but the basis for care is knowing the other person, listening to the other person, and again, anticipating possible needs. I saw Hope posted a story a couple of months back about how asking new parents what they need or saying, if there's anything I can do to help, let me know, is often not a thing that is actually helpful. 
Um, I mean, I think it's well intended, but it, it, it you know, uh, it's really hard for anyone who is going through a big transition or struggling to, through something to even know what to ask for. Um, and I know that increases how challenging it can be to help someone through a difficult time. But I know it can be absolutely life-changing for folks who are struggling to just receive care and help. Even if you offer a list of possible ways you can help someone, that might be easier for them than rather than just asking, what can I do to help? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, even if you don't know exactly what to do to care for someone, like, even small gestures, I think, can go a long way. I had recently was just having, like, a really tough week and... It is definitely hard to reach out when you're in those situations, but I reached out to a friend who had like, I just knew was like a safe person to go to has like been very available in like emotional situations and sometimes listens to the pod. So if you're listening, shout out, you're the best. Um, But, and I said like, Hey, I know that like tomorrow is going to be just like a really tough day for me. And I would love to just like, if we could hang out in the evening and like have drinks and whatever, And she was very willing, came over, also, like, brought me flowers and some other treats, which, like, I did not expect or, like, like, there was nowhere in my mind that I was, like, what would be great if someone, like, brought me flowers? Um, But then having them, like, I just kept them on my table and, like, every time I looked at them was, like, wow, like, there are people who really care about me and that just, like, feels good. And so to Lara's point, even if you offer small things and it's not necessarily like what the person needs. No one's going to be like mad or upset that you tried. Like people are still going to feel good that you thought of them and wanted them to feel better, even if it's not like this huge help of whatever they have to do. Exactly. Um, And so that is a perfect transition into like kind of the tail end of this or part of this tail end, which is uh, how to receive care or like, uh, you know, what it is like to receive care. So I really struggle with this. I think in so many ways I am a like quote unquote natural caretaker, whatever the fuck that really means. So sometimes it's hard for me to receive real care, but I absolutely need it as we all do. Um, I also have learned that if you have a parent or parents who were emotionally negligent, i.e. the dad we've been talking about, you know, Um, You learn from a young age to not ask for help and to try to take care of everything yourself because you were taught that anything else was a burden. So for me, understanding how to receive care really came from understanding the ways in which I stop caring for myself when I'm going through something intense. For example, I can count the number of meals I have fully cooked for myself since Brian died on one hand. So like meaning not something I just heated up or kind of threw together. Feeding myself becomes a huge challenge for me when I'm going through something. So when a friend offers to cook a meal for me, it's truly one of the most nourishing and best things I can have happen. Additionally, I think when people check in on me, like really check in on me, offering to have FaceTimes and calls with me regularly is huge. Um, I recently deleted all social media off my phone um, a few weeks ago because... I realized it was just like an outlet for me to disassociate while I've been going through this hell. And so while my anxiety has decreased and I feel much more present with my grandmother in this time, I also feel pretty disconnected from many people. And I also think that when you're going through something, many people's instinct is to not let you know what's going on in their lives because they think it might be a burden to you or something. But in reality, it can leave me and probably others feeling more isolated in the care work that they're dealing with. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I really relate to this. Like I've talked about this on the pod before, but like, I know for me, when I'm feeling like down or isolated, I have a really, really hard time reaching out to people. And like my default assumption is that people like even my close friends, like just don't want to deal with me. Um, and that's something I've worked on because honestly, all that attitude serves to do is actually estrange you from the people who care. Um, People want to know what's going on with the people they love and they want to be there for them if things get rough. So like, well, you know, while you should definitely reach out to people you care about when things are tough, um, it also really helps to be proactive when you know your friends are going through it just to like be in contact with them, like checking in, asking how they're doing, or, or even just like sharing funny memes or like telling them about your day like it doesn't all have to be like you know sad or or anything just like making sure that people know they aren't alone is huge oh my god before I read the end of that I was about to be like yeah I always just try to like send my friends some memes (laughs) (laughs) I mean yeah I I feel like that is definitely care work um doesn't love a good personalized meme you know truly yeah Um, I I really relate to this also. I think, honestly, most of us have a really hard time asking for help because capitalism and kind of our general American culture of, like, individualism encourages this false ideal that you should, like, be able to do everything for yourself or at most with the help of, like, one monogamous romantic partner. And if you can't do that, you failed in some way. And I think it, like you were talking about, Kellen, like it's just hard to be vulnerable with someone and possibly feel like you're burdening them or making their life more difficult. Um, I think one thing that's been helpful for me with that is remembering how I feel when someone I love needs support and how much I really do want to be there for them and offer that support and realize that that's literally the same way people who care about me feel when I need support. Um, And it's kind of like, I don't know, that thing of like, think about how you would react if a friend were in this situation and give yourself that that same care. Um, When I've been in a moment of crisis and couldn't take care of myself, one thing that was really helpful for me was knowing that I have people to reach out to that I've specifically discussed my mental health with so that they're aware of what might be going on with me. And I also think it's been helpful to get more comfortable directly asking for what I need because as we've talked about, a lot of times people will kind of ask, like, how can I help? Or they might offer something that isn't exactly what would be helpful. And like, you can literally just be like, oh, actually, could you help with this instead? And it's like, people who want to be there for you want to know how they can help. And sometimes it is just what someone might want, especially if you're maybe not as close with them yet. um, And they don't know the right way to ask. So I think that's also like, to the extent that you feel able to do that when you're in a moment where you need support, I think that is a good way to be proactive about your own needs. Um, And of course, there are also times where you might be so unable to take care of yourself that you're not sure what you need or just aren't really capable of making those decisions for yourself or really like acting on things that you might know would be helpful. Um, And in those cases, I think it can be really helpful to have a trusted friend or partner or family member who you feel comfortable essentially having them make your decisions for you during that time and just literally being like, you're going to eat now, you're going to shower now, like doing all of that. Um, And for me, this has typically been informal, but it can also be helpful in some cases to formalize it and like definitely have this conversation with people before you're in that moment of crisis so that one, so that they know, but also so that you feel more comfortable and like know what is going to happen when you're in that situation, which can take some of the stress away that inherently comes with that. 
Um, so one tool that I really like for this is the Fireweed Collective's Navigating Crisis document, and we can link to this in the show notes. Um, it's specifically focused on mental health crises, and part of it is a sample advanced directive. So basically, you can use it to think about who you might want to make decisions for you when you can't, um, when you do or don't give permission to be hospitalized, and suggestions for ways to avoid calling the police when you or someone else is experiencing a crisis. Um, and I also really like Mia Mingus and the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective's pod mapping worksheet, which is basically a tool to help you think about who you might be able to ask for help and get those conversations started with them. Like, could you come with me to this doctor's appointment? Or can you text me every day to make sure I've eaten? Um, there are a lot of different levels of support, both in terms of time commitment and how close the person needs to be to you in terms of like physical space. And some people might be more available for some than others. And I think this is also helpful when it comes to offering care and thinking about the types of support you can provide for people close to you to really think about like what what are the levels and specific types of support that I'm available for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think we wanted to wrap this up by talking about, you know, when we don't have access to other people, uh, ways we can practice real self-care. I thought that it would be good for us to just talk about like real self-care, what that looks like for us. Um, for example, one of the things that has been really helpful for me lately is I have been going on what I like to call my rage rides, um, which is basically when I get on my bike uh, after spending whatever amount of time I have at my grandmother's and just go for as long as I fucking can um, so that I get out my rage for my dad being an absolute piece of shit. Um, and it helps me continue to show up for my grandma in the ways that she needs me to. That's amazing. <laughs> I love our fire sign energy because for the past few years, I've referred to my workouts as running out the rage. And this involves me either literally running, though I don't really like running. So more recently, it's been like swimming laps, but I just like go really fast and think about all of the things. Not really. I'm not that fast. I go as fast as I can and think about all the things making me mad um, until my rage subsides. And then I feel much more able to like emotionally deal with other humans, to be honest. Exactly. <laughs> um, love that for us. <laughs> you, you know, sometimes being a fire sign is just like, I'm just like, I'm a ball of rage and I have to unwind it yeah well it's like for me it's like airy sun and then it's scorpio and even though scorpio is a water sign it's also ruled by mars so like it's just like it's wound tight yeah <laughs> yeah this is also funny because this is like so cancer of me but like i do the same thing but it's for like when i'm really sad i like run out the sads you know <laughs> that is very cancer of you and i love that for you <laughs> Um, so for me, uh, I think naps are a huge part of caring for yourself when you're going through mm. something intense. Um, I have heard that some people can't nap and for those people, I'm sorry. But for me, as someone who has multiple chronic illnesses and fatigue is already like an uphill battle for me, taking naps is critical to my survival right now. Okay, can I ask a question? I love naps. And what I need to know, because this came up in one of my classes recently, how long do you think that, like, how long are your naps, approximately? 
So I think they should be around an hour and a half to two hours. Okay. Same. Same. An hour and a half is the perfect nap length. Okay. There were people in my class insisting that a nap is like 20 to 30 minutes and longer than that is like asleep. They were like, that's not a nap. Um, And so thank you both for agreeing with me. This is why I love you. I just had to know. (laughs) Now it's public information. A nap is one and a half to two hours. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, I, I think like that's the next REM cycle. So like. And for me, right. exactly. like, that's the length of a sleep cycle. So that's like you wake up feeling rested. It's it's really like scientifically proven that is the perfect length. Literally, all of us Thank m- you. probably I feel did understood that research now. and we're like, this yeah. is why we're so whatever. Exactly. It's fine. <laughs> you heard it here first. An hour and a half is the way to go. Um so finally, I wanted to share something that my therapist worked with me while I was grieving the loss of my stepdad. Um, so while processing and sitting with your emotions as you're going through something intense is important, if you're like me, you might over-process or overly dwell in your feelings or grief. And it was really helpful to me to have my therapist tell me to basically give myself a time limit on being in my emotions and processing, whether it's an hour or two hours a day, either split up or in a block of time, it gives you... It helps you kind of step aside from those feelings and do things or watch things that you can get out of those feelings so they don't make you drown. That way you're not escaping or avoiding your emotions, but you're also not dwelling in them. It allows you to process your feelings while still living as much as you can. So shout out to my therapist <laughs> for oh, yeah. helping me. You love a good therapist. <laughs> Um, so that's our show. If you would like to support funding the host's care work, please give us money on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. We also have a discord where we discuss a lot of care work related topics like dates we're going on, food we're cooking for ourselves and others. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at season of the bee. Email us at season of the bee at gmail.com. Visit our website, seasonofthebee.com, and rate, review, subscribe wherever you're listening to this. Love you all. Freaking love you. Love you. Bye. 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 Season of the Bitch.